All right, uh, everybody, thank you for tuning in. Today, I'm really excited to talk with Greg Knuckles, who is a powerlifter, rider, and just overall knowledge provider in the fitness industry. And uh, I'm not really sure if this is the best intro, uh, but I gave it my best. Um, so, Greg, thank you so much for taking the time today, and how are you doing? I'm doing great, and I thought that intro was just fine. The intro I typically give myself is, hi, I'm Greg, let's do this thing. Awesome, yeah, no, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> perfect and humble. <laughs> So yeah, uh, Greg, uh, how are things going for you these days? Uh, they're pretty good. They're pretty good. Um, currently trying to finish up my master's program or finish my master's degree. Uh, would not necessarily recommend someone try to go to grad school while also attempting to run two businesses. Uh, so very busy, um, not sleeping the most. But uh, on the whole, life is good. Life is good, and I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, so that's also a plus. Awesome. Yeah, well, um, yeah, That in that case, I appreciate even more that you took the time to talk with me today. So, um, cool. So, let's uh, basically jump, jump into this uh, topic that I want to pick your brain on today, which is on your recent work with regards to training frequency. So, um, for anybody who doesn't know, but probably a lot of people who will listen to this know that... In recent years, basically the general consensus was that two or three times a week training frequency per muscle group seems to be the most optimal. But even more recent work uh, basically showed that the typical bro split when you just hit something once a week might be just as good. So, uh, and you came to a slightly different conclusion. So first of all, what is the conclusion that you came to? And what would you say you did differently than the people who came to those previous conclusions that I just mentioned? Um, so the, the biggest thing is that... Um, there has been an explosion in the amount of research looking at the effects of training frequency on uh, both muscle growth and strength gains in the last, like, just six months or so. Um, I, I want to say that as of seven, eight months ago, there were maybe like six or seven, I think six, uh, good, like, volume-matched frequency studies out there. Um and then within the past, uh, like six, seven, eight months, um, that number's jumped to like 13 or something like that. So the, the body of literature has, has doubled or more than doubled. Um, so I think one of the reasons that I came to slightly different conclusions than, um, like prior attempts to, to synthesize that body of research is just now that now there's more research out there. Um, so I think, I think that was part of it. Um, and I'll also note there's apparently at least like three or four more uh, frequency studies in the pipeline from uh, Brad Schoenfeld and colleagues that uh, in talking to James Krieger might uh, flip the conclusions again. So who's really to say? <laughs> but for for the time being, as it stands now, uh, it appears that um, training frequency has at least a, a semi-linear effect on uh, both strength gains and hypertrophy with um, no, no obvious plateau at a particular frequency. Um, the one, so the one issue with that is a lot of studies look at frequencies between, or with frequencies of discreetly one time per week, two times per week, or three times per week. And then there are a, a decent number of studies, I think five or six, uh, four or five, I think, that have even higher frequencies than that. So frequencies of four or five or six times per week. Um, but there aren't that many that use a frequency of 
like precisely four times per week or precisely five times per week or precisely six times per week. Um, so, so past that point, it, there's not enough evidence to really be able to say for sure. But when we kind of like pool all of those like four plus times per week frequencies together, it, it does seem that four plus times per week may also still be slightly better than two or three times per week. Um, but once you get past three times per week, there's, there's not enough research yet to, um, to speak with too much granularity. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, it seems that, uh, the frequency is pretty cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, seems, seems to have a, you know, not black and white effect. Like, I think that, I think that one thing that's important when you're talking about, uh, really anything, um, related to program design and how much something is actually going to affect your progress in the gym. I think it's important to make sure that, um, you, you contextualize the magnitude of an effect you can expect. So I think as far as strength goes, um, the, the core driving programming variable is going to be uh, intensity, percentage of one rep max. Uh, for hypertrophy, I think the most important thing is certainly still volume. Um, so I'm not saying that like this turns everything on its head and oh, volume doesn't matter for hypertrophy. It's just how often you train. Like, no. But if you... Uh, take a certain level of volume and distribute it over more days per week, it seems that that may um, help with hypertrophy a bit, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah it totally makes sense. So um, so then it, it begs the question, uh, what, what would you, I mean, you obviously wrote about these things, a lot of the questions that I'm going to be asking you, you answered this in that really awesome meta-analysis that you wrote up on your site, but what would you attribute these benefits to with higher training frequencies um oof. you know i am not quite sure uh, <laughs> so starting with strength because that's that's what i'm the most familiar with and the most comfortable with um the the first place most people's brains would go is like oh maybe it helps you uh get stronger because it helps you build more muscle um which is, which is possible, but, uh, I, I would need to go back and actually like run that analysis to see if like, maybe if, if the studies that do report the large, the largest gains in hypertrophy also reported the largest differences, or if the studies that reported the largest hypertrophy differences between frequency conditions also reported the largest differences in strength gains between conditions. Uh, I think that would be evidence, uh, to that effect. I did, I did my analysis of, uh, strength stuff first. Um, and when I, when I was doing that, I was, I was laboring under the assumption that frequency didn't affect hypertrophy all that much. Um, cause that is what the most recent meta analysis had said. But again, the most recent meta analysis, um, wasn't privy to literally the majority of, of the literature, uh, at least as far as volume match studies go, because so many volume match studies came out after that meta analysis was published. Um, so I didn't, I didn't look into that, uh, for strength. So, so that may have an effect, but I, I would need to go back and analyze it. Um, my hunch is that the, the two, um, kind of like core driving factors that would explain why higher frequencies may be beneficial for strength gains are that one, um, you're just getting more frequent practice and a lot of strength is just skill acquisition and skill development and, and just getting better at, at whatever exercises you're doing and frequency of practice for most motor skills tends, tends to be a, a pretty important factor. Um, 
And then I think the other thing is that even if training volume is the same, if you're just looking at like volume load or total number of sets completed or even like total number of reps completed, uh, I don't think that tells you the entire story um, because even if you use like the same weight for the same number of reps, um, the, the quality of those reps, I think, is important. Um, and so th this is kind of like a wishy-washy statement. And I, I recognize that like as a coach, like you can tell if people are like really like engaged and going hard in their training or if they're kind of just like going through the motions and maybe letting their foot off the gas a little bit. So they're like conserving energy for the end of their session or something like that. Uh, and I think that that is more likely to play a role, um, with, with lower frequencies. Um, like, so per session volume is higher. And so you might not put as much into every set um, just because you, you know you have more to get through in that session. Uh, and I think if you want to kind of approach that same idea using um, like a, a little bit more quantitatively instead of qualitatively, um, I think that there's probably going to be a difference in force output and bar velocity per rep. So if you, if you lift 400 pounds for a rep, um, you're not just flatly applying 400 pounds of force the whole time. Um, if you did, the bar wouldn't go anywhere. <laughs> so if you get the bar, like if you accelerate it really fast, force is mass times acceleration. So if you accelerate it really explosively and reach high bar velocities, force output per rep is higher than if you lift it at slower velocities and a little bit more, more lackadaisically. Um, and what you tend to see is uh, bar velocity and force output drops off set to set, even if the weight and the number of reps is the same. Um, so if you calculate something like impulse, I think, t I think total weekly uh, impulse would be higher with, uh, with higher frequencies and lower per session volumes, just because you're not going to be accruing and accumulating as much fatigue um, for each muscle group and in, in each exercise within each session. Uh, so even if volume is the same, I think total weekly force output and average weekly force output will will probably tend to be higher uh, with higher frequencies and lower per session volumes. Um, and so I think that that also helps contribute to strength development. As far as hypertrophy goes, I'm honestly kind of scratching my head. And, and actually, let me just go back to, to strength real quick. Um, just kind of to argue against myself real quick, I don't I'm somewhat skeptical of the degree to which those explanations actually fully explain everything that's going on. Um, because another, another one of the findings was that, uh, training frequency seems to matter more for upper body strength gains and less for lower body strength gains or potentially not at all for lower body strength gains. Um, and so uh, this is just based on my experience here, but most people, tend to be pretty good at the bench press. And that's the exercise that, that was used most often um, in these studies. And most of them used uh, trained lifters. And so, you know, most people who've been in the gym for six months, like they may, they may not have like IPF champion level bench press technique, but they're relatively proficient at the bench press. Like it's, it's not a, it's not a difficult exercise. You lay on the back, you grab the bar, lower it to your chest, push it away from you, bada boom, bada bing, you got it. Um, so if this is predicated on skill acquisition, especially, 
uh, I wouldn't expect the effect for the bench press to be nearly as, as large as the effect for the squat. Uh, and most, most of the, the lower body measures of, of strength gains were the squat. Um, I think one of the studies used leg press and one of them used like machine hack squat, but for the most part it was squatting. Um, and I do think, I mean, squats also aren't like unbelievably technical, but I think, um, most people struggle with technique and just have a little bit harder time mastering the motor pattern of, of squats than bench. Um, so if anything, if, if it was predicated, especially on skill acquisition, I, I would expect it to have a larger effect for squat than bench. So that one honestly has me scratching my head a little bit. Um, and then as far as hypertrophy goes, um, so the, the kind of mental schema I was working with coming into, uh, coming into this analysis was that, um, frequency would probably matter more for trained lifters than untrained lifters. Um, cause it, it seems that elevations in muscle protein synthesis go back to baseline a little bit quicker in trained lifters. And so, um, you know, may, maybe like, let's say a frequency of, of twice per week, maybe muscle protein synthesis is elevated for 72 hours post-workout in untrained people. So their muscle protein synthesis is elevated above baseline for six days a week if they're just training twice a week. But with trained lifters, maybe for a similarly challenging workout, um, it's only elevated for 48 hours. So, you know, there's three days per week that their muscle protein synthesis wouldn't be elevated above baseline if uh, they were only training twice per week. So, you know, maybe they should train three, four times per week to, to always stay in kind of a, a general growth state. Um, and, uh, and the other thing is, is I assumed that um, frequency would matter more for higher volume training than lower volume training. Um, cause I, I was kind of working with the assumption that, uh, th there is a dose response relationship between like volume in a given session and muscle protein synthesis, but, it, uh, from what I've seen, doesn't seem to be perfectly linear. So you do one set, you get some, you get a MPS response. You do two sets. MPS response is higher than one set, but not twice as high. Uh, you do three sets, MPS response is higher than two sets, but it's not an additional 50% higher. So it's, there's a dose response relationship, but it's not linear. Um, so I was thinking like, you know, like it has to not necessarily fully plateau, but you have to probably reach a point at some point where the, the mark, the additional marginal benefit of each additional set, uh, within a given session is small enough that it really doesn't matter if you did it or not. Um, but if you, moved that set to another session where maybe it is the first set of that session, the, the marginal benefit would be much higher. Um, so I anticipated that, you know, if you're doing like, I don't know, 20 sets a week or something, if you split that up as, uh, and I'm, I'm working with the assumption that, that, that that's reasonably high volume. If you split that up as, uh, four sets, five days a, a week, I would expect that that would be better than, than 10 sets, two days per week. Um, and that that would make a larger overall difference than say 10 weekly total sets, comparing five sets, two days per week to two sets, five days per week. Um, however, both of those assumptions were completely wrong. <laughs> it seemed that the effect of frequency on hypertrophy was larger for untrained lifters and trained lifters, um, and larger for, uh, overall lower volumes of training than higher volumes of training. And, uh, I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I speculated some mechanisms in the article 
but I don't know the degree to which they, they can actually explain those findings um, because those two things. So I, I think that I think that in a general sense, frequency of, of muscle protein synthesis stimulation uh, probably does largely explain uh, these effects. Like I, I can't see how that wouldn't be the, the driving mechanism. Um, but I personally still have a lot of unresolved questions because what I found uh, largely went counter to my assumptions going into it. And I'm, I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around it and, and figure out why things shook down the way they did. Yeah. And uh, I mean, obviously, anytime, anytime there is a finding that is kind of striking, but is really cool at the same time, like part of me, at least, is always wondering, like, is there something that we are missing, which would explain why these results seem like this on paper, but they aren't like that actually in the re in real life? Uh, or is it actually the case and we just don't understand why? So like how, how confident you are actually, uh, given what you found, that this in practice is actually how it's working out. So that untrained lifters benefit more from higher frequency and lower volume training benefits more from higher frequency. So I, I, I hope I understood your question. Um, internet started cutting out a little bit there. I, so I think that one thing that it's important to note, um, that, that most people probably want to note is that there is, there's always a chance that you wind up with a false positive. Um, and I think that that chance is a lot higher than most people realize. Uh, so there was actually a, uh, a, a reproducibility study in the social sciences that just came out like last week. Um, and it, um, so it tried to replicate 21 like important seminal findings published in nature, like really high impact journal um, over the last like 10 years in social sciences. Um, and of the 21 studies, only 13 of the results actually replicated. Um, in the mean effect size for the replication attempts was only half as large as the, um, like as, as the original studies. So like, yeah, I, I think that, I think that people see P values and they see P less than 0.05 and interpret that as, Oh, there's a 95% chance that this finding is, is a true positive and not a false positive. Um, but that's, that's not the case. <laughs> so yeah, uh, one possibility is that uh, I came to incorrect conclusions and um, that's not on me for analyzing the data wrong. It's just on, you know, just, just sampling variability and just a random false positive. Cause that, that happens. Uh, it happens not infrequently. Uh, it happens in every field. Um, and I think people just aren't aware about that and don't, and are too hesitant to admit that that's a possibility. Um, so yeah, that could be all it is. Um, and then uh, another possibility is that, uh, yeah, like you said, maybe the, the mental models that I was working with are just wrong. Um, and if that's the case, uh, I've, I've put a lot of thought into this and I can't figure out mechanistically. Uh, like I based on my understanding of muscle physiology, I can't figure out a, a mechanistic reason to explain what's going on. Um, and that could be an issue with me, like good explanations could be out there and I'm just completely unaware of them. Uh, or it could just be that there's, 
some some physiological stuff going on that just we as a field don't understand yet. Um, so yeah, overall, the, the confidence I would put in the general finding that strength, especially upper body strength, is positively influenced by training frequency, uh, I'm I'm quite confident in that, like 80% plus. Um, the fact the general finding that hypertrophy is positively influenced by training frequency, um, maybe not up to super high frequencies, like five, six times per week, but up to at least like maybe three, four times per week. Um, reasonably confident in that. Like I'd say, um, eh, somewhere between 60 to 80% confident. Uh, my confidence in, in, two plus times per week being better than just once per week is, is probably closer to like 90, 95%. Um, in terms of the actual specifics of like the sub analyses, like frequency mattering more for untrained lifters than trained lifters. Um, you know, I, that's where the evidence leans. And I put, I put my confidence in those findings above, above 50%. Cause I, I don't, I don't think there's a justifiable reason to put it below 50%. Um, but that would be closer to like, you know, somewhere between 50 and 65% and not up in the 80, 90% range. Sure. Sure. That makes, makes total sense. So, um, speaking about hypertrophy still, like, um, and you also talked about this in your article, but how, how much would you say that, uh, upping frequencies up to like three, four, maybe even five, six is, is a win-win like, uh, what is kind of the cost benefit? um, and yeah, like if you could address this both from a theoretical scientific perspective and both from a practical real life perspective, that would be really cool. Uh, if, if it's okay with you, I'm just going to address it from kind of a real life perspective because I think that that's, I think that that's what's going to matter the most for the listeners. Sure, sure. Uh, so ah, never mind, never mind. I'll, I'll throw some theory in as well. So ultimately, I think that. Um, I think that as, as far as applying these findings go, or really applying uh, the findings of any research, you need to keep in mind um, individual variability. And I think that I think that people tend to dramatically underestimate uh, the the degrees to which um, individual variability can matter. So I think that. I think a lot of people realize that like, Hey, some people just respond better to training than others. Um, like, you know, you, you could train the way Ronnie Coleman did and take all the drugs Ronnie Coleman did. But if you're listening to this, there's like a 99.999% chance that you would not wind up looking like Ronnie Coleman. Um, like similarly, you, you can, you can train and eat the same way Ray Williams does. And you would not lift as much as Ray Williams. Like that's, like people realize that there's variability in how good generally people respond to training. I think that people are a little bit less aware of the fact that there's also variability in uh, how how well people respond to particular styles of training. Um, I think one reason that this is a blind spot is is there is just less research on it generally, um, but there is definitely research out there. Uh, supporting the fact that people respond better or worse to to different styles of training, um, and so I think that I think that when interpreting results like here and also just elsewhere in life, um, 
it, it's important to keep that in mind. So on average, higher frequencies may be beneficial for strength development and hypertrophy. Uh, for you personally, they may not. Um, and my advice to, to anyone when it comes to applying scientific results to your own training is use science as a, as a means of identifying ways that you should troubleshoot when you plateau, but don't just like proactively apply everything you read. Uh, I think that progress is the, the like most precious outcome variable for a given individual. And if you're, um, like if you're on a training program and it has you training every exercise or every muscle group just once a week and you're making solid progress on that, just don't worry about frequency for the time being. Like you, you have clear evidence that what you're doing is working for you. Just stick with it. And then, uh, when you plateau and you're thinking like, Oh, I've plateaued now, not making gains anymore. What variables should I potentially look into adjusting to start making progress again? Then you go and look at something like this and be like, oh, there's evidence that training frequency may positively impact strength gains and hypertrophy. So maybe I'll try to increase my frequency and that's maybe how I'll be able to get progress going again. Uh, I think that that's a good way to look at this and not necessarily like, oh, like you read this article, you need to overhaul your entire training program to train every lift five times per week proactively. Like, I, I think that that's silly. Um and also, if you try higher frequency and it doesn't work for you, uh, that doesn't mean that that science is wrong. Like, you could just be someone who who doesn't take well to higher frequency, and like that's also totally fine. Um, so yeah, that's that's I guess more theoretical, part theoretical, part practical. Uh, the other practical consideration is, is I think it depends heavily on kind of your own psychological profile um, and just how you prefer to train and how good you are at holding yourself back. So, you know, let's say, let's say you're someone who uh, like all, all of the Instagram cliches apply to you. Like you go to the gym to slay your demons and you want to just crush yourself every time you go and like train a particular body part. Uh, just all that stuff. Uh, I, I may sound derisive because that's not how I wired it all. But like, if, if that's you, you do you, man. Um, in that case, I don't think high frequency is probably the best approach for you. Because uh, if you're like, if every time you want to train legs, you want to have to like hobble out of the gym. Um, and that's just like what a proper like training day feels like to you. And kind of holding yourself back would just not feel like a proper training session. You probably shouldn't train legs five times a week. Um, that's probably a, a good approach for, for getting injured at worst and just kind of spinning your wheels and, and low grade overtraining at best. Um, so yeah, I, I think if, if you like to get a little bit crazy in the gym, always go to failure, do enough volume that you just feel like you've absolutely fried whatever muscle groups you're training. The low frequency approach is probably best. Like I think that that is, uh, not, I wouldn't go quite as far as to say fundamentally incompatible with high intensity training, but if you can get away with uh, high frequency with that general type of approach, uh, I think that would just mostly be a matter of, of being lucky um, and being able to recover much better than the typical person. Um, on the other hand, if you're 
if you are a little bit better at being more restrained in like more restrained and analytical with your training, um, like you don't feel like you have to go to failure every set. You don't feel like you have to crush yourself to, to have had a productive workout. Uh, then, then I think that, um, a higher training frequency, uh, can be, can be a lot more compatible with your general psychological profile. So I, I'd say that's the, the, the primary practical takeaway. Like I, I think, I think that in, in theory, on average, higher frequencies are better. I think in practice, uh, some people just, just aren't suited for it psychologically because, um, the, the general training style necessitated by higher frequencies just wouldn't be enjoyable and fulfilling. And if they trained in a way that was enjoyable for them with really high frequencies, they'd, they'd probably snap their shit up. Right. Um, so you mentioned that if your progress is good, then don't bother. And, but what if someone's progress is pretty good on once or twice a week frequency, but they just read your, your analysis and they're like, well, there's always the chance that I could be making even better progress. So they try out training four or five days a week. So like, what would be the type of population for whom you would say, like, just definitely do not bother doing this? Um, definitely do not bother. Hmm. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, so I would say maybe older people. Um, I, so my, my analysis was restricted to, uh, volume and intensity match studies in healthy young adults, uh, young, young to middle-aged. Uh, I think one study included people up to like 40 or 50 years old, but like nothing older than that. Um, so I didn't necessarily read all of the frequency research in older adults, like people 60 plus, um, when doing this article, but based on, based on the stuff I've read in that population, just kind of over time, uh, it doesn't seem that frequency has as positive of an impact on them. And it may even be deleterious past maybe like two hard workouts per week or so. Um, my, my friend Cody Hahn was, was a co-author on a paper recently, um, looking at this in, in older adults where basically one group, uh, did three pretty hard workouts per week. And the other group did two pretty hard workouts per week. And then the third workout, uh, like they still, they still got in the gym and, and did a little something, but it was, uh, like low intensity, fairly low volume, not close to failure. So like a, kind of like a feeder workout almost. Um, and the group that went hard three days did not make as, as good of progress as the group that only had like two tough sessions per week. Um, and, Man, I seem to remember at least one other paper having having pretty similar findings. Um, but again, I think I think individual variability still applies. So, like, just because it seems that on average higher frequencies probably aren't as beneficial for older adults, like there are probably older adults who would still like respond better to higher frequencies. But uh, just playing the averages, the averages work in in the opposite direction for them. If that makes sense. Um, so just as like, there, there are certainly still young adults who probably do better with lower frequencies. There are probably certainly still older adults that, that do better on higher frequencies, but it's just, uh, the odds of that occurring are lower, if that makes sense. Uh, and other than that, I can't like older adults and people who just kind of like to train a little bit crazy. Like those are the people who I generally wouldn't recommend higher frequencies for, um, but I also want to claim that that applies like in all cases at all times. Sure, sure. Now, 
what is your, I mean, obviously you're more uh, personally involved with powerlifting, but what do you think about the implications for connective tissue and tendon and joint health? Um, personally speaking, I found that if I train something more than like four days a week, and even up to like four days a week, even if I just train my upper body in general, I just find that my shoulders and my elbows by just constantly pounding them with loads throughout the week, they just get incrementally more flared up. But I just might be a negative outlier. So uh, what, what do you think about connective tissue and joint integrity with higher frequency training uh, in the context of hypertrophy still? Uh, man, that's a good question. I think... Um, so... Oof. With, with the disclaimer that that is, is not... Uh, squarely within my wheelhouse um my understanding was is is basically that it's um is that like tendon health and i i know more about tendons than than ligaments and like cartilage uh, I, i'm not even going to speculate about them uh, it's my understanding that kind of like tendon remodeling and, and strengthening works in a way that's not dissimilar to, um, to, to skeletal muscle. It just tends to happen a little slower and on slightly longer timescales. Um, and I think it would largely come down to kind of the, the degree of, sh of stress you're placing on your tendons within each workout. Um, such that like, you know, if, if you cause, like, let's say X amount of damage within a workout, and let's say your your tendons can recover from X amount of damage within 48 hours, then, you know, if you train two days later, like that's kind of in balance, like recovery matches stress and things are good. If you, if you wind up putting like more stress on your tendons within that workout, um, like let's say you put two X amount of stress and you still can recover from X amount of stress within 48 hours. Then, yeah, if you train again, you, you'd start kind of digging yourself a hole. You'd induce additional stress when you hand it, uh, fully recovered and repaired from that, from that prior stressor. Um, so I think that, I think that in general, um, it probably doesn't necessarily increase, uh, risk of joint injuries. Um, like if you look at, um, if you look at some of, of the research looking at injury risk and like acute on chronic training loads, um, it seems that, that variation in training volume, like jacking your volume up like 30, 40% overnight, um, is a much stronger predictor of injury than uh, distribution of training loads. So I think, I think that on average, it doesn't necessarily increase risk, um, assuming volumes equated. So, you know, assuming that increasing frequency doesn't also come with an increase in volume. Um, but again, like I, I think individual variability applies. Like I, I think that it, you know, maybe riskier for some people, but I don't uh, think it's inherently riskier on average. But again, uh, that's a good question. That's not a question uh, in an area that's like fully within my wheelhouse. So I could be completely wrong. Sure. And 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 just another question, which also might not be completely up, up your alley, but uh, I'll ask it nevertheless. Uh, what do you think is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, like there have been a lot of interesting discussions about the diminishing returns effect of volume within any given session. And I guess a practical question off of that is like, what is sort of the upper uh, threshold? In, assuming, you know, pretty hard training, you know, like one or two reps in reserve kind of sets for the most part, like what would be the most amount of sets beyond which it's 
highly conceivable at least that there's a strong diminishing returns effect and perhaps with that like what's the lower threshold like is one set enough or two sets or what what would be your like practical and maybe theoretical recommendation there oh man that's that's a good question um that's a good question that i don't have a concrete answer to and i don't think anyone does um however i think i think i can confidently say that at least the upper limit um is is quite individual um so so for example um Brad Schoenfeld just published another study like two days ago or something, two, three days ago, uh, looking at, at weekly volumes, but um, like higher weekly volumes obviously means like higher per session volume as well. Um, up to like the, the highest volume group was doing like 45 sets per muscle group per week. Uh, and I think that was, I think that was split up as like 15 sets per day which is above the range where most people would posit that, that marginal benefits are incredibly small. Um, and that study still found increased benefit for up, up to like that level of volume. I think, I think the three levels of volume used in that study were like nine sets per week, 24 sets per week, and like 45 sets per week um, with like differences in, in per session volume scaling with that as well. Uh, on the flip side, and so like that, that's an example of like, you know, <laughs> it, it seems like there, there were still marginal benefits there up to really quite high volumes. Um, like if you, if you divided say total hypertrophy by, uh, sets performed per session, like you can see that, that marginal benefit per set is still dropping off. Like it's not like the 45 set per week group grew almost twice as much as the 24 or 27 set per week group or whatever it was. Um, so yeah, like marginal benefits are, are dropping off, but it still seems like there are marginal benefits there. Uh, on the flip side, there was uh, a paper looking at German volume training versus basically half German volume training. Uh, actually, I think there have been two papers looking at that, basically like 10 sets of 10 versus five sets of 10. Um, and I want to say that in those papers, it was just like one, one exercise per muscle group. So it would be like 10 sets within a session versus five sets within a session, I believe two or three times per week. Um, and, and those studies found, uh, either similar hypertrophy, uh, between like the 10 sets per session and five sets per session, uh, or in some measures, maybe even slightly more hypertrophy with the five sets per session than the 10. Um, so like those results are, are completely opposite from, uh, the results that, that Dr. Schoenfeld just got. Um, but there were differences in training statuses between those two studies, like the uh, the, the guys in the German volume training study were like not untrained, but kind of like semi-trained, I guess. Um, and the, and the people in Brad's study, like they, they weren't elite bodybuilders, but they, they seemed to be of a higher training status than the folks in the, the German volume training studies. Um, so yeah, like, I think that, I think that there is like a, a deep, a decrease in marginal returns, um, with increased sets that really kind of, it probably starts on set two. Like I, I think the benefits of set two are probably smaller than the benefits of set one. Um, and then you kind of get like a, a logarithmic type curve of uh, like total accrued benefits past that. But I think the, the area where it starts flattening out and then I guess it wouldn't be entirely logarithmic because at some point it turns negative. Like if you do a hundred sets per session, like four times per week, like you're probably going to atrophy from that. Like that's, that's just way overboard. Um, 
So I think I think that the area where that curve starts flattening and eventually turns negative, I think that's uh, strongly impacted by training status. Like I think that for an untrained lifter, um, you may hit the point of diminishing returns by like, I don't know, four or five sets for a given muscle group. Um, like the repeated bout effects stuff hasn't built up yet. Like you're just new to training and, you know, maybe if you do a couple more sets, you could get some more benefits, but really yeah, four or five sets per session. This is probably fine. It's probably fine. Um, whereas if you're way more well-trained, um, you know, I, I still think the general curve would look the same. Like I think you get more benefit from set one than set two, more from set two than set three and so on. Uh, excuse me. But I think that the, the point that that curve really starts flattening out and marginal benefits start approaching zero, I honestly don't know. Like, and I think it could be really quite high. Like it, it might be like not 10, 15 sets per week. It might be 10, 15 sets per session. Um, and so, yeah, like I think it's impossible to give a, a concrete number of like for everyone, this is about how many sets you need to do per session. Um, I think that it's going to be much higher for people who are, are more well-trained. And I think even within given levels of training status, I think that uh, there's probably individual variability uh, as well. So yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure that's, uh, that's not probably not a good answer for the listeners. Cause you can't really, you, you can't really take that and apply it like directly to yourself. Like, Oh, how many sets should I do per session? I don't know. Somewhere between five and 20. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's probably unhelpful, but, um, yeah, I think there, I think there's probably a pretty big range for an untrained person, eh, maybe a rule of thumb, four or five sets for a more well-trained person, eh, 10 ish sets, maybe eight, 10, 12, somewhere around there per session, uh, per muscle group. Um, but yeah, just know that, that, uh, your mileage may vary, might be higher or lower for you. Sure thing. Um, uh, before, before I ask you my, like, final one or two questions uh do you have a hard stop uh in the next couple of minutes or like i don't want to be too abusive of your time more so than i have been already uh i need to be off by two but that's 49 minutes from now so you're good okay cool i'll, I'll try to be efficient nevertheless okay so um just just to throw out another softball at you like what personally uh how do you like you just mentioned the german volume training study and now the new study from Scho or no new analysis from uh, schoenfeld so, um, like how, like, how do you, what do you make of these crazy high numbers that just came out in the recent data? Cause that's, you know, volume always, where it was always thought to be one of the key components to hypertrophy, but not to these crazy, you know, by these crazy margins that we just seem to have uh, discovered in these latest data. So I think, um, I think that there's, there's a bit of a disconnect between, between research and, uh, what people kind of observe in the real world. Um, so I think, I think that within the, the bro community, there are like, you know, like high intensity training, Arthur Jones, zealots who are like, ah, low volume is the way to go. One set to failure, blah, blah, blah. But I think that kind of within the bodybuilding world, the overall tenor tends to probably favor, uh, maybe excessive levels of volume, um, that, potentially might only be possible with, uh, with chemical enhancements. Um, so I think that the, the pendulum in the, um, bodybuilding world might, might be swung a little bit too far in the really high volume direction. But on the flip side, you do also see a lot of people training with crazy high volumes and still making progress. Um, like, you know, the, 
um, the, the meta regression from, uh, 2016, 2017, um, that, that Brad and James Krieger and others did, uh, found like finding that there were, um, like quasi-linear increases in hypertrophy with increased volume up to at least 10 sets per week. I think that a lot of people saw that and, and saw that as up to 10 sets per week, period, like 10 is the number. Uh, whereas they just didn't have enough studies with even higher volumes than that to really analyze much. Um, but yeah, I mean, like if you look at what people are doing in the real world, like there's not much research looking at 20, 30, 40 sets per week. Uh, but there are a lot of people who are doing 20, 30, 40 sets per week per muscle group, uh, and still making progress. So they're, they might not be training. Well, they're almost definitely not training the most efficient way. Uh, like going, going back to marginal benefits with each additional set, like they've, they've probably hit the point of diminishing returns, but their volume's also not so high that they're not still making progress. And they may still be in the realm of positive marginal returns. Uh, they could just be very small positive marginal returns, like per additional set they're doing. Um, so yeah, like I, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's all that crazy. Uh, oh, and so, so that's like the bodybuilding side of things on the strength side of things. Um, if you look at like the, the Eastern European uh, lifting tradition, uh, or even just like what, what Mike T is doing at, or Mike Tishier is doing with uh, his guys at reactive training systems, like their volumes tend to be really high. Um, and like, there are, there are thousands. Yeah. I was going to say, if not tens of thousands, that, that might be overstating it, but there are, there are at least thousands of people who have tried really high volume Shaco style approaches to powerlifting uh, who've gotten really good results from it. Um, Mike and, and his guys have coached, again, probably thousands of people, uh, including like several world champions with really high volume approaches. Um, so yeah, like I'm, I'm not too shocked at the, the research findings. Like I, I won't be shocked by a research finding in trained lifters finding uh, increased benefits with higher volumes up to really quite high volumes. Um, cause you, you know, you see it in the real world. Um, I, I would be pretty surprised if say, you know, you test 50 sets per week in untrained lifters and they find that that's like super great. I would be, I would be pretty shocked by that. Um, but yeah, like there just hasn't been much research in, in this general area, um, using fairly highly trained lifters or just fairly high volumes. Um, so I think it's less surprising in light of the literature that, that we're seeing that now. And I think it's more just uh, a gap in the literature that's finally being filled that that matches what you see in the gym. Yeah, cool. Thanks. That's that's a great response. And uh, another thing I was I was looking forward to pick your brain on for a, for a second is uh, I remember reading an article from you back in the day, which was grow like a new lifter again. And I, I kind of recall you saying that you that you change your views on that uh, somewhat. So what do you think about the concept in general of uh, deconditioning or detraining purposefully for a while to kind of grow again as if you were like a fresher lifter with less training experience? So I um, I haven't necessarily changed my view. Uh, I need to reword that article though um, because like I... When I, when I wrote that article, I very much intended for it to be a hypothesis. And so, like, just to lay it out for all of the listeners, um, one of the things 
that so okay i don't i don't know if many people have actually thought about like why do people eventually stop growing like mechanistically um like there there aren't that many muscle protein synthesis studies in trained lifters uh but the stuff we do have seems to indicate that you know they lift weights muscle protein synthesis doesn't increase as much as it does for untrained lifters but it still does increase uh and muscle protein breakdown doesn't seem to be any higher at baseline and actually seems to be lower post-training because their their muscles are, are more adapted to training so there's less damage and all that um so just like on paper if you just look at muscle protein synthesis i can't see any good reason that people shouldn't keep being able to grow indefinitely forever um so like the question then becomes like okay so what what might be the bottleneck like why <laughs> why can't you just be a natty and if you put in 50 years of training eventually look like ronnie coleman like i i think that if you haven't thought about this question that sounds ludicrous because like oh yeah of course people lift weights for a while they gains eventually slow way down and, and probably stop at some point you hit your genetic limit blah 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 but like people don't think why like mechanistically why don't muscles keep growing um and so one of the potential bottlenecks is um myonuclei so there's there's something called uh myonuclear domain theory and so essentially what myonuclei are is is you know that most cells in your body have a nucleus and the nucleus uh people refer to it as like the control center of the cell or whatever but basically it holds your dna that is then used to make rna and all of the proteins for the cell to do whatever it needs to do uh muscle fibers on the other hand are uh, very rare in that they're multinucleated cells um so they have many nuclei like per muscle fiber um and it seems so referring to something called myonuclear domain theory it seems that essentially each nucleus um oversees a given amount of of sarcoplasm and that there there seems to be an upper limit on the amount of sarcoplasm essentially that each nucleus can oversee and code proteins for and all that and that um when you reach your myonuclear domain limit like once each nucleus is, each myonucleus is overseen and controlling as, as much of the sarcoplasm as it can um you probably need to accrue more myonuclei or else you're going to stop growing um and so the the direct and so again like i don't i wouldn't necessarily claim that that is for sure uh the reason that people eventually stop growing like eventually just stop fusing myonuclei but that does that does at least seem to be one potential explanation um of, of what would eventually bottleneck hypertrophy and so then the question becomes like how do you actually like activate more satellite cells and then get them to donate their their nuclei so then you can accrue more myonuclei um and the details are are pretty hazy but that process seems to be related uh at least in some degree to muscle damage um and one thing we know is that with increased training experience muscle damage uh decreases quite substantially and so the hypothesis i made is that if you've been training for a while and you feel like you've been doing everything right but you are just plateaued super hard and just not gaining anything it may be worth uh trying to take some time off decondition your muscles so then when you come back uh when you start training again it will cause more muscle damage and maybe that will help with some additional myonuclear accretion and then help you grow a little bit more 
um, and just, you know, maybe just repeat the process. And obviously that's not going to be uh, uh, quantitatively the same as growing like a new lifter because they just grow like weeds when they touch a bar, but like qualitatively similar in that you're um, getting your muscles into a state where they're going to be more easily damaged. And that might help with um, myonuclear accretion, which, you know, might help you continue gradually making progress when it seems you had, had finally hit a hard plateau. Um, so yeah, like I, I presented that as a hypothesis and laid out the evidence for why I felt that that was a plausible hypothesis. Um, and I think a lot of people interpreted it as Greg is saying that this is absolutely what happens and is how everyone should train. Uh, and that is not how I meant for it to, to be interpreted. Um, so yeah, I need to rework that article, uh, and, and less because, um, of any, of any like strictly factual issues and more, more just due to, to communication and, and perceptual issues. Cause I, I feel like, I feel like what I wanted to say was clear to me. Um, but a lot of people clearly didn't take away from the article, what I meant for them to take away from it. Um, so I feel like I, I need to go back and, uh, rework it. So, so what I meant to say is more obvious. Awesome. Perfect. Well, uh, I think uh, I pretty much asked you all of my nerdy questions. So I, I guess just to uh, wrap this whole thing up, like if someone is listening to this who, you know, maybe has been training for one plus years at least and is, you know, like somewhat trained but is not super jacked yet and wants to proceed with the best kind of practical guidelines possible, like what sort of frequency and volume would you say this person should be starting out and then moving forward from, from there? Uh, sure. So I, I, I think I got enough of it that time to answer, uh, just for, just for anyone listening. Um, we've been having internet connectivity issues. And so if I, if I'm attempting to answer a question and it seems like the question I'm answering is not the one that, uh, Abel asked, um, it's not because I'm a complete idiot. I'm only partially an <laughs> idiot. Part of it is, is just, I'm not a hundred percent sure what he's saying every time. <laughs> so I, I apologize for that. Um, so I think you're asking like kind of for a intermediate trainee, kind of what levels of volume and frequency would I, would I recommend, um, for, for someone who's just purely focused on hypertrophy, I think that somewhere in the neighborhood of like 15 to 20, 25 sets per muscle group per week is probably a pretty decent place to start. If you want to be conservative, start on the lower end of the, of that range of, of around 15 sets per muscle group per week. Um, and, and know that you probably have room to work up from there. Um, and in terms of frequency, I think that, I think that from a, from a practical perspective, just in terms of, of training splits that, um, make sense to people, <laughs> uh, either a frequency of, of twice per week or three times per week is, is probably a pretty good place to start. Um, you, you probably could just train everything every day, but that tends to make workouts like kind of unwieldy because you're kind of having to go all around the gym and fight for a bunch of equipment. And I think that, uh, I think that as with most things there, there are probably, uh, decreases in marginal utility for, for frequency past a point, um, especially with hypertrophy. So, uh, two, three times per week, maybe four times per week. Um, something that, that is easy to implement for twice per week would just be like a, uh, push pull legs split. 
uh, push one day, pull one day, legs one day, repeat that again. You're in the gym six days per week. You have a frequency of twice per week uh, for all major muscle groups. For a frequency of three times per week, it could just be an upper-lower split with, uh, you know, upper day one, lower day two, upper day three, lower day four, upper day five, lower day six. Um, and, and that gets the job done. Uh, and then past that, if you want to do frequencies of like four or five times per week, you need to be a little bit more creative with your splits. Uh, and so I think two or three times per week um, is probably good enough for most people just because it, it makes planning easier. Um, for someone who's primarily focused on strength, um, I think that, so assuming, assuming you're a power lifter, I think that frequency probably matters the least for deadlift. Um, may matter to some degree, but not a ton for squat. Um, actually, when I say it matters the least for deadlift, I more so mean deadlift should generally be lowish frequency. Um, so I think that may have like an inverse effect. I just don't know that many great deadlifters who deadlift more than twice per week. And I, I can't think of any that deadlift like four, four or five times per week. Um, and for bench, I think that the frequency is quite important. So I'd, I'd recommend a frequency for deadlift of once or twice per week. Uh, and if you deadlift twice per week, typically like one pretty hard session and one easier session. For squat, um, two or three times per week seems to be the sweet spot for a lot of people. Uh, but there are also absolutely very, very good squatters who only squat once per week. Like I, I believe Ray Williams squats once per week because apparently it takes a while to recover from squatting a thousand pounds. I've heard, I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, like I, I don't think frequency matters quite as much for squats, just in terms of what I've observed personally, two or three times per week seems to, to get the job done for most folks. And then for bench, uh, there are really strong people with a pretty low bench frequency, but I would start most folks um, on a frequency of three or four times per week. Um, if if they know that they have issues recovering from, from bench workouts, like maybe their shoulders or like pec tendons are really sore for several days after a hard bench workout, maybe start them on twice per week. But I tend to think that, that three or four times per week is, is a good place to generally start bench frequency. Uh, and then volume. So with, with hypertrophy, I was kind of working with the assumption that, that all of the sets would be either going to failure or at least pretty close to failure. Um, for strength, I think, I think volume in terms of sets per week is heavily dependent on how close to failure you're training. Um, with like a Shaco approach, you're generally like, you're almost always two plus reps from failure and, and typically three plus reps from failure. And like, geez, the volume on those programs can just absolutely, absolutely be gnarly just in terms of the number of sets you're doing, um, just because like you're inducing a little bit less stress per set. Uh, so it's harder to give like concrete volume recommendations. But I think that if you're if you're going pretty close to failure most of the time, um, I think you can get away with a little bit lower volume than uh, than the recommendations for like hypertrophy, just because the the marginal benefits for increased volume on strength gains seem to be smaller than the marginal benefits of increased volume for, um, for hypertrophy. Um, so yeah, I think instead of like maybe 15 to 25 sets per week, uh, a good place to start would be maybe closer to 10 to 15 sets per week, uh, for, for deadlift and squat. Again, if you're going pretty close to failure and for bench, I, I think it, it can be higher, like, maybe in the 20, 25 range. Uh, then if you're not going particularly close to failure per set, like all bets are off. <laughs> um, 
you you can do a ton of sets and I think at, at that point there's just so much individual variability it's hard to give like concrete numbers but uh, you can probably take the other recommendations and roughly double them um, and uh, and and before anyone crucifies me for that like you may have just heard like, ah, 20 sets of bench if you're going reasonably close to failure. So are you saying 40 sets of bench? Like, eh, just, just give it a try before you knock it. Uh, if you're training with like 80% of your max, like sets of three or four just aren't the same as sets of like six, seven, eight. Um, so yeah, like I, I think that weekly number of sets can, can be quite high if you're not going super close to failure. Awesome. Perfect. Well, Greg, uh, thank you so much. You dropped a ton of cool knowledge. Just one random uh, thing that I want to ask you at the beginning or at the end, because uh, I've been consuming a lot of um, Jordan Peterson content as of late, okay. and he always talks about IQ. And I remember t t talking about some test result of yours in the past or something. Would you know by any chance what your IQ value is? <laughs> I do. Um, I don't know. So... I, I might be the one in the wrong here. I just feel like that's that's a weird thing to talk about publicly. Um, and I I wouldn't want people to, to look at me differently. And and also like just just so uh, just so like my, my intention is clear here. I think that um, I think that people <laughs> I think that people who like openly talk about having a high IQ, I think that that has a, a strong potential to be misheard. Uh, because I think that it either comes across as like people bragging, which if someone's bragging about their IQ, they're a fucking idiot. Uh, because like, I, I think that if you're going to brag about something, you, you brag about something that it took like effort or skill to accomplish. Um, and IQ is like 80 plus percent heritable. So like you had virtually nothing to do with, with your IQ number. Um, so I wouldn't want it to be perceived as, as bragging. And I think that people who do talk about their IQ in a bragging way are, uh, ironically just fucking idiots. Um, and, uh, and the other thing is I, I think that apart from it sounding like bragging, I think, uh, it can come across as someone, uh, implying that they're better than other people. Um, and I think that that comes from maybe either the speaker or the, or the listener, uh, misunderstanding what IQ is. It's, um, it's it's not uh, synonymous with smarts. It's it's more synonymous with just like uh, horsepower, I guess. Um, so like if you're if you're set to figure out like a set of of novel problems that uh, primarily are are predicated on um, like really more pattern recognition skill than anything else, uh, then people with higher IQs tend to be able to do those types of tasks a little bit better and a little bit faster. Um, but it's, it's not synonymous with general smarts. Um, citing people who, who talk about their IQ number as if it makes them, uh, better than anyone else fundamentally don't understand what they're talking about. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that that is a, a thorny issue. Um, and so I, I just elect to not discuss it publicly. Sure. Well, that was that was so interesting what you just said at the beginning that I'll leave this final section in because I yeah I think you just shared some information on the topic that most people wouldn't know. So, um, so yeah, Greg. Uh, with that, I just want to ask you where people can find your work and new projects, anything that you're working on. Uh, just feel free to plug. Uh, See, so you can find my writing at strongerbyscience.com. Uh, 
most of my stuff these days is in mass. Uh, that's not because I'm, I'm trying to um, squeeze people into pain for my content. It's more that um, since I'm currently in grad school, I just don't have much time to put out a ton of free content, which is unfortunate because that's that's ultimately what I love doing the most. Um, but yeah, so mass monthly applications and strength sport research review I do with Eric Helms and Mike Sordos, breaking down the research that's going to be the most useful and relevant for strength and physique athletes. Uh it's an awesome resource. You can check that. Well, I think it's an awesome resource. I'm obviously biased. Uh, hopefully you will too, though. Um, you can find that at strongerbyscience.com slash mass. And then uh, past that, I'm, I'm reasonably active on Facebook and somewhat active on Instagram. Um, and I'm just Greg Knuckles, both of those places. Perfect. Uh, Greg, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure having you on. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I had a blast. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode and liked what you heard. And if you did, then I think you definitely love our SSD training and nutritional course that we recently put out with Burge Fuggerly. This program not only contains a 12-week phasic training program that you can use to time efficiently and safely build the best body you can, but also gives you four plus hours of video lectures about managing your nutrition and lifestyle to not only look good, but feel and perform optimally. And besides this, you will also be getting some really awesome bonuses like Burger Fuggerly's Myo Reps and Zero Carb ebook. So if this sounds interesting to you, then go ahead and check out sustainableselfdevelopment.com slash SSD program. And of course, to not miss out on future episodes like this, subscribe to the podcast and you'll be up to date on everything we'll be putting out. So thank you for hanging around up until now and see you next time.